Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. horror films and today's guest is david lemon hello david hello how, how are you doing i'm all right i'm all right i always love that little false hello how are you after having 10 minutes of preamble always <laughs> makes me feel stupid and um but i always leave it in so so david you've come on to do your five great british horror films which we'll find out very soon but you're a screenwriter of note yourself so do you want to just give the audience a little introduction as to who you are what you've done yeah, I'm a, I'm a screenwriter. I've done a, a, a few things. Did a film back in 2008 called Faint Heart for Film 4. We had a lovely cast, Eddie Marsden, uh, Ewan Bremner, Jessica Hines. Uh, that was, couldn't be further away from a horror film. It was, uh, well, not, it was a, a sort of romantic comedy about battle reenactors. Um, more recently, I did a feature in 2015 called Containment, which was uh, a sort of uh, panic thriller. Uh, I always build it as uh, Ken Loach's Towering Inferno. It's a social realist uh, film with, about a, a, a viral outbreak. So it's about it happening not to Hollywood type people, but people that are perhaps more relatable. Uh, currently, I'm writing a horror with uh, some very, very nice producers. Probably can't say too much about it in case it doesn't happen and I have egg of on my course, face, but no, we're very excited about it. <laughs> and uh, just done a pilot. Uh, Again, sort of slightly under under wraps at the moment, but a pilot horror pilot for Sky. So horror is very much um, what's on my mind at the moment. Good, good to hear. Right then, we're gonna we're gonna jump in, but before we do, let me just tell the rules to you and the listener. It's five horror films, obviously five great British horror films. It's five minutes per film, and when Edgar Broughton band sing "Out Demons Out," we're gonna stop. <laughs> no matter no matter where we are, no matter how prescient the point you're going to make, David, no matter how life-changing yep. it could have been when Edgar Broughton sings, that's when we'll stop and move on to the next film. Not because I'm mean and cruel, but because I want to give each film at least five minutes conversation. And then, hopefully, at the end, we'll have made sense of what you why you like these films, and we may even find a theme to talk about at the end, if indeed there is one. Hmm. Okay? Okay. So, first up... 
We're going to start at 1945 with Dead of Night. Right. So, okay. So, yeah, uh, an anthology film uh, from 1945. I think it's it's very much of its time, but it's also very um, contemporary. If, if you've seen something like Andy Nyman and Jeremy Dyson's Ghost Stories, it's very much the kind of the DNA of it can be traced back to um, this Ealing film. It's also quite a weird departure when you think of Ealing. You think of, you know, capers and comedies with Alec Guinness and Lavender Hill Mob and all those sorts of things. And this is, could it be more different, really? Um, when I think about it, it's obviously, it's a portmanteau film. There's different uh, sections to it. Yeah. But the one that I always remember, and I'm sure it's one probably most people remember, is one, is one uh, directed by, I believe it's Alberto Cavalcanti, different directors for different sections, which I think is quite interesting. And this is a section with Michael Redgrave and his ventriloquist dummy. Mm. Um, which I think is a really um, resonant story uh, because if, you know, if you've seen um, Richard Attenborough's uh, Magic with Anthony Hopkins, it's almost a feature-length version of the same thing. It's the idea of this uh, sort of ventriloquist dummy taking over, taking possession of the ventriloquist himself, and mm. him getting. And it's a great performance by Michael Redgrave. He's kind of really um, sort of sweaty and unhinged, and kind of. It's, it's a quite a modern performance in a way, in, in, in a very sort of um, rather sort of quaint, otherwise slightly quaint horror film. So, um, yeah, no, so that, that's the one that's, I was trying to remember when I first I was going to say, would you, I mean, yeah. na- neither of us are, uh, are of that much of a vintage to, to be seeing a 1945 <laughs> film when it comes out. So how, how did you come, how, how did it come to your attention? Well, it's hard, cause, uh, in a weird sort of way, it's hard because I'd seen other versions of it it's, it's hard to say but I, 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 sort of, I think it was years ago probably I was in my late teens I suspect it was one of those kind of BBC Two afternoon films mm. <laughs> so it's although it's probably a horror film of its time it's probably seen as, as quite genteel and they sort of you just tick these things away on BBC Two and you'd see things like you know um, The League of Gentlemen not um, you know, going back to Jeremy Dice not that League, that League of Gentlemen the Jack Hawkins film mm. you think that, but also amongst it was this sort of very, very sort of odd sort of portmanteau, portmanteau anthology series. It's got this overarching thing of um, a group of people sort of sharing stories around a table in a house and then kind of going into these individual stories. And, and this is very much the one that um, stuck out for me. It's, it's sort of it's a template because I remember it, it sort of, it's payoff, like you say, ghost stories is, is, um, is, 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 I mean, I guess Ghost Stories is is a portmanteau, but it features features the same person in each in each vignette, yeah. doesn't it? Whereas obviously this is this is a group of people collected together in a room, and none of them know why they're there, and not they don't mm. all know each other, do they? Either that's the important thing about it, isn't it? So they don't feel there's a relationship, and then as the stories evolve, they begin to connect one. Another. So the connected tissue is returning to the country house, isn't it? Before the next person tells their story there's the horrific one with the car crash isn't it on the racing track yes no that 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 that, that, that that's fantastic as well it's kind of pre- premonitions of death and it's also quite hard to see people like um this wonderful character actor miles mallison who I remember um years ago i made a documentary about uh the importance of being earnest and this guy just always played these befuddled vicars mm. um in sort of films of that age it's quite odd to see these kind of almost this repertory company in a in a horror film scenario, but there's this lovely um, sort of sense that all the plot strands kind of dovetail together at the end when there's this very nightmarish sequence where Hugo, the dummy, 
um, suddenly stands and walks towards us. And it's, you know, obviously in hindsight, it's clearly just a child or um, perhaps, you know, a, a small person getting up and walking towards us. But it's there's something kind of really um, still quite quite genuinely horrific and disturbing about this, about Hugo, who's, who's thus far been, you know, Michael Redgrave's alter ego, um, actually kind of having agency and standing up on his own and attacking um, the one of the guests in the house. It's, I mean, it's hard to imagine, isn't it, as well? You know, you think 1945, that's when the war ended. You go, so, you know, where was this Where was this film coming from in that context? No, absolutely. I think it's kind of, uh, I mean, the Ealing comedies, I mean, you know, it's just to kind of look at Ealing as a whole, they do, they are actually often a lot harsher and sharper than, than people say. So whilst this feels a bit like a kind of bit like an outlier amongst their films, you know, if you bear in mind something like um, Kind Hearts and Coronets, which is, Kind of a serial killer story, mm. <laughs> you know, with with um, uh, various uh, with Dennis Price killing off various Alec Guinnesses, a whole family. Oh, there goes Michael Edgar <laughs> for the first uh, for the first five minutes. That was uh, dead and night. Thank you very much. So we're going to we're going to jump fifteen years to the Village of the Dam, nineteen sixty. Do you want to tell us uh, a little bit about that? From what, why that's why that's appeared on your list. Well, I, I saw it's appeared on my list. I looked at I looked into it in a little bit more detail. I think it still qualifies as a British film, even though uh, it was distributed by MGM. And I think it's really that um, well, I'm a huge fan of John Wyndham, and it's that weird sort of sense of a a very quaint world. And we're talking about you know being a post-war world where everything's under the surface, and there's kind of weird um, disturbances. In this case, there's a kind of it's an alien invasion story. Um, and again, I, I saw it probably probably just a few years ago but it's something that like hugo the the talking or sentient ventriloquist dummy the weird blonde kids mm. identical blonde kids almost was something i was aware of before seeing the film it's a bit like when people watch the simpsons and they almost know the parody of something before they know the original yeah film. They, they, they the stills from this stills from this film i saw a lot of them before i ever saw like from sort of annuals i got as a kid sort of the best of horror mm. and that kind of stuff and long before I ever saw it. No, absolutely. And it's, I think also to go, to go put it into some kind of context is probably some parallel with the uh, decision to make all these alien children, you know, just to explain the story. It's a, it's a small village where overnight um, every woman becomes pregnant and they have these children who grow unnaturally quickly and they're all, they have this kind of telekinetic power and a kind of hive mind. All these children have this kind of, bleach blonde hair and you know i'm sure there's some parallels with the kind of aryan master race yeah you know whether which i'm sure intentional does it does it does it stay true to the, i mean i've I must admit i've actually got the novel queued up to, to read very soon mm. um is, is it does it does it hold true to the novel or is it just take from the novel it's it's very true it's a very faithful adaptation um what's fascinating i think about the book is which really i think lends itself to being a, a new adaptation or a new approach to it is it's all told from the male perspective and it feels like the most extraordinary story is that of the women who suddenly find themselves pregnant for some of them it may be a a, a terrible thing for some it may be a godsend mm. and it's sort of this kind of weird uh communal immaculate conception which kind of happens in this village yeah is is kind of touched upon in the book but it's it's all relayed through men and it feels like a film with lots of or book rather with lots of men folk with pipes discussing what the women is happening to women and deciding what to do. So it feels like it's um, very much of its time because it's entirely through this kind of male prism 
which which feels rather odd because it feels like the most traumatic events are happening to the the lives and the bodies of the women in the village. And and this is this is probably a, this is a, maybe an earliest example of of horror through children. This idea of we've 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 always been a bit suspicious of children. If you think mm. Victorians just said you know yeah. be quiet and don't say anything unless you're spoken to. And then, then you've got like by now you've got the burgeoning popular culture thing of teenagers, you know, and sort of disrespect is beginning to become a norm, and um, and I, I guess this is this is this is maybe an early indicator in film of that, just showing literally the, <laughs> the adults adults fear of of the of the the next generation coming through, but giving them a conspiratorial conspiratorial to- edge as well. No, I think I think that's definitely the case. I mean, oddly enough, one of the I believe one of the blonde uh, children in it uh, was also uh, the very creepy young man in another film, which I think has popped up on the or should have popped up on many people's five best horror films list. The Innocents mm. is actually one yeah, of the yeah. the, um, the unnaturally and we um, sort of bright and sort of weirdly seductive <laughs> towards Deborah Carr's character. That that same young young actor, I believe it's Martin Stevens, also appears as one of the blonde children in this. So I think it's um it's definitely part of that kind of you know creepy children subgenre. So we see we see versions of that constantly. And I think it's um it's a sort of it's a fascinating film and it's got some great performances and even people who you, you know, as well as obviously George Sanders at the centre of it. Mm. Um, is at the very beginning Peter Vaughan is the police officer who kind of cycles over and he sort of collapses rather comically on his bicycle because there's this weird sort of zone in which everyone falls asleep and then everyone wakes up pregnant and um, he sadly passed away recently with an extraordinary career encompassing everything from Porridge to Alfred's in the North and Game of Thrones but he's um, it's a really interesting um, it's a very British it's a very British film isn't it in the sense of the like the, the 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 level of the melodramatic aghast at the idea of this mass immaculate conception is mm. is a very British thing. I think it's not. It's there's no shock horror, as it were. It's, oh, look at that! <laughs> that one. Have to leave people to finish that conversation ah, themselves. Didn't get to the brick. Didn't you get to the great? Why are you thinking of a brick wall scene? <laughs> it's so iconic. Never mind. Never mind. Okay. Um, well, we're going to jump now to another. We're going to jump into into the seventies now. And 1973, with, with I mean, I'll say argue because I think lots of people will still argue about it. But but I think for many popular popular lists and opinions. Although to be honest, this is I don't think if I remember rightly, this hasn't actually appeared in those list yet. So you're I'm the, amazed. You're yeah. the, no, I think it's because I've kind of gone. Don't you don't have to do what is already considered to be the best. But obviously, it, yeah. it would be in mine. Um, mm. So what I'm what I'm dancing around with in my head and in my mouth here is uh, Don't Look Now, 1973. So do you, do you remember when you first saw it? Well, I think I have to thank um, uh, Alex Cox and Movie Drone for this one. This was definitely one of those late night discoveries. Right. Um, on that great sort of, I think it's BBC Two series. Yeah. And introduced yeah. me to so many different films. So, so it's definitely there I saw it. I mean, I was uh, born in 73, so I wouldn't have been around at the time. Mm. I understand it was a double bill with um, The Wicker Man, which is one hell of a double bill. Uh, well, we- weirdly, a, a double bill with an edited version of, like a shortened version of Wicker Man. <laughs> Just go, go straight to The Wicker Man. <laughs> well, yeah, no, it's, it's like, it's weird. It's, it's sort of, you know, the full, the, this is why later on that ended up getting, it's kind of, um, mm. the director's got everything. But, but do, you want, do you want to tell us what it is, I mean, 
what it is that, that appeals to you about what uh, Nicholas Rowe achieved with Don't Look Now? Because I guess, I mean, even both fil- both those films are double bill. They weren't easily classifiable as horror films. It's only over time no. that they've been put into the, the horror the horror bracket. Um, so what is it for you that makes it such a good British horror? Well, I mean, I think it's it's a combination of, of different things. I think it's, you know, the, the central performances, I think, uh, are just astonishing. And we hear this kind of term occasionally of elevated horror or the idea that, you know, these are the horror films it's okay to like. But I think there's always been great films. And I think at the centre of it is, is because it's at the heart a study of grief. Mm. And I think sometimes the best horror films are, you know, resonate and they touch upon something in the real world. Mm. Um so I think it's it's that it's it's that really sort of lived in and plausible relationship between Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland. I mean, there's a moment at the beginning, prior to you know, I think I can spoil the film. Oh, the daughter know. drowns. Mm. <laughs> um, mm. It's just one moment where she's looking for cigarettes and Donald Sutherland looks at her with such love and affection. That, you know, in that one moment, it's, it's told so visually. You just go, this is a couple who who dearly love each other, and this absolutely wrenches them apart. And there's a I think a wonderful irony in um, Julie Christie's character desperately seeking uh, an afterlife in the sense that her daughter lives on, whilst Donald Sutherland, who actually does have psychic abilities, is the one dismissing it. I mean, there's probably a version of the story where, you know, more obviously, you know, there's a psychic and a sceptic, but the idea that you know, Donald Sutherland is both psychic and sceptic, I think makes him a really complex character. I was going to say he he wants to be a skeptic, doesn't he? That's what he's yeah. he's he, the pragmatic side of his brain is making him go, you know, you don't get to see your daughter again after she dies and the mm. mother's grief is I haven't got closure and I need to see or speak to her in some way, which obviously is perfectly illogical. And and mm. an interesting setup really for what becomes the kind of psychological descent that the film goes in, isn't it? Because it's not it's not like a it's 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 not your traditional horror tale, is it? And hence like you say, it it would if it was made today, it would be grouped under the uh, the appalling banner of um elevated genre. Um, <laughs> but it but it is but it is interesting how it, it, it built it cranks it up so you are you're as tense as they are. You're you're that it's like emotional violence, isn't it? That that relationship like you say that seems so perfect. And one absent-minded yeah. moment, really, isn't it? That's all it is. Well, it's a wonderful sort of misdirection. You assume the boy is going to be um, uh, the son. Something's going to, going to happen to him. So there's this wonderful piece of misdirection. And obviously it sets up this sort of visual motif of the red and the girl in the red raincoat, mm. um, which carries them, them through to Venice. But even before the sort of more conventional horror elements, you're you're completely gripped by, by their dilemma. And, you know, are those two sisters conning them? Where do... Where do our loyalties stand? And, you know, there's no... I mean, obviously there's, you know, the, the supernatural element, but it's... Even if that was taken away, you feel like this will be an incredibly powerful study of grief mm. just following these two characters. And obviously people often cite the um, the scene where they make love as being one which is kind of incredibly influential. Mm. But what's what's wonderful about that is is it kind of juxtaposes you know, these two people making love with sort of the mundanity of it. They're brushing their teeth or just, you know hanging out in a hotel room and yeah you just kind of believe in these characters in a way which when it does go into that horror sort of descent as you say you're completely with them and i think that's that's the key thing is is the involvement it's not about jump scares or kind of more sort of glib techniques it's about really 
empathising with these characters and putting yourself in their shoes. Yeah, it's the ho- it's the horror of the reality of the situation, not not the horror thrown at you. No, abs- abs- absolutely, and I think it's um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of. I guess, <laughs> there we go. So we're gonna we're gonna. That's st- <laughs> it is, yeah. No, I think we, that was that was a nice that was a nice nice way to talk about it. Uh, so uh, we're gonna stay in the seventies, just jumping in another mm. three years. And yeah. uh, I got in trouble for this last time I said it, so I'm gonna say it again to be in more trouble. Um, the the uh, we're gonna talk about the Exorcist knockoff. Uh, the <laughs> which I say with, with with my tongue in cheek because uh, because I, I do love the film. Um, yeah. Um, or, or, or Exorcist Light, as I, I think I said the first time I was trouble for it, um, is uh, the Omen from nineteen seventy six. Um, yeah. Do you want to do you want to talk about uh, maybe when, how you first come come in contact with that film? Well, it's a very odd one because my dad loved this film mm-hmm. and told me all about it before I'd seen it, so I almost got all the beats of the story. So I had this weird, legendary quality before I ever got a chance. To see it, and and you told them how you, your dad did what? <laughs> he just told me the whole plot of the film. Right, he just, he just, he was just so excited about this film and just loved it. And the idea, maybe, what do you, I don't know what's his relationship with. He, he was kind of checking my scalp for six six sixes or anything. But um, so I kind of got a lot of the beats of the story. I understood it's about this, you know, family. The mother uh, goes into labour, loses the baby. The father to try and spare the grief hears about this child and also in this hospital and does a bit of a, a rather weird switch and only as a child um, gets older they find out it's the Antichrist. Uh, I thought, yeah, I knew all about it through my, through my father first. It, it didn't necessarily yield the surprises I thought it would, but what I, what I love about it, I think, is um, there's this weird, it does a similar thing to the birds. It has these wonderful scenes where you have, um, you know, children playing. There's a really iconic scene where... Um, he has his rather, his father, I think, is a diplomat or ambassador, mm. I should say. Yeah. Played by Gregory Peck. And so he has this rather lavish children's party with a kind of carousel. And then the, the, the a nanny just hangs herself out the window and sort of smashes through it. And it's, it's kind of like when the birds attack the children's party in, in, in the Hitchcock film. Mm. It's this real kind of dissonance between, you know, it's almost picture book image of childhood. And I guess going back to the kind of creepy children, it, it has a lot of that. But I think it's yeah, it's a film that's kind of been mocked as well. I remember um, my uncle had this book of 50 worst movies and it was actually in there as this no. terrible movie. You can still get it. So it's, it's, um, it's called The 50 Worst. And it had things like Ed Wood and just like sort of, you know, Manos, Hands of Fate and Absolute Garbage. And I always thought it was rather unfair. I mean, it's, it does take itself rather seriously. But I think it's just something delicious, especially about this kind of the way Damon seems to work through... Um, lots of character actors as well. Yeah, no, but but it's it's it, it, I I always thought it's it's brilliance was was in that that simple idea of you know mm. you're not going to ever believe that the devil is in a child. No, and that's that's the genius in, at the centre of the whole idea to me. And, and and obviously you you have to believe what's happening, but how how do you turn around and go that child is to blame? It is a, it's a it is a really tough call, and it's what makes it. It has to get to stupid levels of um, mm. of horror before before anyone can start to go. Well, do you know what? Maybe there is a problem here. No, it's exactly. I mean, it's so sort of abhorrent the idea of a parent killing a child that I think you sort of go with it. So obviously it escalates, and you have these you know, incredible scenes with um, 
yeah, the sort of Patrick Troughton one actually sort of um, almost made a little bit of a pilgrimage to the church near Putney, right. where um, <laughs> Patrick Troughton was was speared. I think there should be a blue plaque or something, but sadly, <laughs> sadly there isn't. Um, but it has this kind of incredible um, sort of escalation and, it, and juxtaposed with these scenes where you kind of entertain the idea maybe he's maybe he's not like that. There's a great sort of weird little photo montage where Lee Rimmick takes um, he plays a mother takes Damien to what's now Legoland but was Windsor Safari Park and it's almost like a kind of family slideshow that he's just taking a kid to the zoo but all the monkeys are running away and everyone you know, yeah, 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 yeah 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 it's sort of, um, noises and I guess it's part of um, it does it does date but it's kind of created some of the kind of I guess cliches of the future which a lot of great films or, or influential films certainly do yeah, it's 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 certainly left its place, hasn't it? I mean, even if you if you go to at the, at the crassest level, it's the uh, obviously um, only fools and horses sort of riff, riff, <laughs> riff, riff, yeah. riffing on it. You know, for it to for it for it for it to be that indelibly in the minds of British culture, for it to be a, like a joke within something as mm. uh, as dearly held as um, as Only Fools and Horses. I think it's testament to the film as much as, as much as it is to yeah. uh, Only Fools and Horses' use of it. Be- I think it's played, you know, as it should be, absolutely straight. Mm. So we get, you know, um, as I say, it escalates. We get uh, various people kind of who are, I guess, warning Gregory Peck. So mm. we have... Uh, the journalist played by a, a, a incredibly young David Warner. He is indeed. And, yeah. um, uh, the late great Liam McKern as well as a, as an expert on the Antichrist. So these various. <laughs> there we go. These five minutes, they fly by. They do, they do. Uh, the standing got to uh, David Warner's head flying off. Oh well. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, if you get too close to the devil, you get, you, you, you will, you will die. Um, it will that, happen. That's basically yeah. the message of the omen. Yeah. Um, don't <laughs> fuck with the devil. Um, right. Um, you, you clearly had nothing nothing to enjoy about the 80s or, or the or the 90s. <laughs> was, no horrors there. It's, 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 a good, it's, it's a really funny thing about people picking five is that there's either one from each decade yeah. or obviously once you start to... Contact, certainly you started in 1945, there was always going to be this... this there's going to be somewhere you're going to have to bridge some place mm. and uh you've 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 led us all the way to 2004 and certainly one of like, this would have been in if i was doing this if i was on the other end of the microphone this, yeah this would be in my five it's uh shane meadows dead man's shoes from 2004 no okay well i mean it, i think it's an extraordinary film just sort of uh I only recently found out. I didn't realize i assumed it was written by written and directed by shane meadows but it's co-written by paddy considine so his, you know, as well as his extraordinary performance in front of the camera, he sort of helped shape the story. And I think, you know, on the surface, you could see me, you know, the kind of poster with the red and black and the guy with an axe. You might think it's, you know, it's Texas Chainsaw Massacre or even something more more conventional, like a kind of traditional revenge thriller. Mm. But I think what it is, is that it's that combination of um, the sort of thriller, revenge thriller, but also, you know, a, if I can go into spoilers, supernatural elements, mm. um, but also Shane Meadows' sensibility. I think that's what makes it really stand out. I mean, you've got you know someone taking revenge against gangsters, but these are these are Shane Meadows' gangsters. They drive a, a crappy two CB and they eat pot noodles, and they they they're not particularly good at being gangsters. 
Well, no, I mean, I'm I'm from a town which is probably as big as the town that 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 they're, 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 they're occupying, and it's that idea of whoever was the gangsters in that kind of town is a is a big fish in a small pond, mm. and it's what makes. I guess Paddy Constantine's revenge, as it were, seem insurmountable, and yeah. also is what adds to their complacency. Is that they they're seemingly, you know, untouchable in in their minds, but but it and also the the, the supernatural element of this is is really a, I mean I don't know what you think it's really just Paddy Constantine's motivation. It's not like the supernatural actively does anything. No, exactly. It kind of so it occupies this sort of strange space because obviously we come in through his points of view and see the world one way. Mm. So it feels mm. it feels like very much a kind of a psychologically motivated device. It's not just a, a story that's hanging on a twist. You know, the, it's not about the destination. It's, the journey there is just as just as satisfying. I think so. Now, and yeah, it has this great kind of. Um, I think like a lot of his films do, a great sort of energy and apparently he likes to work with a lot of improvisation as well. So whilst there is a script there, there's a there's almost a kind of a naturalism to it which makes it feel even more um, more powerful because it's almost like we're, we're watching a documentary about this happening. Mm. And, 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 it's, um, and as far as some of the daft rules knocking about, about screenplays, this, mm. ex- this excels at the use of flashback, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I do a, a little bit of uh, teaching from time to time. And I think it's that Robert McKee thing where they say, thou shalt not have flashbacks. And I think that's absolute nonsense. If they if they drive the story forwards, if they're motivated, if they belong to someone and help us understand them, then there's, there's totally a place for them. Um, there's also kind of uh, really one of the scenes which always stands out for me is the one where um, Gary Stretch, the boxer Gary Stretch, who's actually rather good, very good in it, actually, uh, as a gangster, uh, Sort of tries to intimidate Paddy Considine and the scale and there's kind of the um, you can sort of almost see this seesaw tilt as um, the power balance shifts and Paddy Considine's just kind of quietly amused and just not scared of him at all. And he has this kind of contained rage where we really don't know what he's capable of, even before he kind of almost takes on this sort of supernatural air when he wears a gas mask mm. and he it becomes almost like a like a leather face or a or uh, Michael Myers in those moments. I'd not thought about this before until so you said that, but in, in a sense, the kind of return of Paddy Constantine character is, is maybe akin to like John Wayne's character in, in, in The Searchers. You know, as in yeah. a different person has come back and obviously Gary Stretch's character has to find that out the hard way. Mm. In terms of he could... I'm guessing before Paddy went away, as it were, he would have been scared by Gary Stretch. And maybe even... And it's never said in the film, is it? He may have even been running away from Gary Stretch and therefore feels, and maybe a lot of the guilt is having left his brother at the mercy. Absolutely. I mean, it's just sketched in. There's just like one brief sequence where you see him in the military uniform, returning home by um, attending, a, attending a funeral. But, you know, so the, the flashbacks really just take us into seeing um, his brother, who's brilliantly played by Toby Kebble, seeing uh, the kind of cruelty. And it's a kind of playground cruelty, but escalates. And it's kind of, you know, even more absurd and obscene because it's these kind of middle-aged sort of thugs, small-time thugs pushing around this this young man who's got, you know, um, uh, sort of, you know educational, sort of developmental um, mm. needs. So so it's, it feels, I mean, that's even before we get to the, the moments of, I think, of true horror. 
Yeah. Like we see a body, we glimpse a body inside a corpse. Uh, sorry, inside a suitcase. <laughs> body inside a corpse. <laughs> yeah, well, I meant inside a suitcase. Yeah, you know what I mean. I do indeed. I do indeed. And yeah, no, it is. It, it really it it does it. It delivers on its horror as well as as well as telling a fantastic tale. Which by the time it gets to its point where it tells you, you know, really why he's here and everybody has to die, you kind of you completely sold on it. There's nothing. Whereas it, 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 you're not always completely sure, are you not, as to who's guilty and who's innocent? Because obviously someone just turns up killing the bad guys, in inverted commas. Yeah. Needs more than just, oh, they're, they're the cartoon bad guys. And we get to know absolutely why why he, he does it and why it's so ruthless. Um, I don't, yeah, and we get to that final gang member and he's he's left that past behind. He's got a wife and kids and... Suddenly, we, you know, it, it feels, you know, it really kind of questions and interrogates the the revenge motive which drives some. Oh, films. that that is that is. So, I mean, you you are like, it's it's a it's 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 kind of got the power of um, what do you call it? Uh, Man by Stog, where Man by Stog yeah. gives gives you a dark joke and you're laughing at the old woman who dies of heart attack and you kind of ha 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 ha, and then the whole uh, couple rape mutilation scene. Suddenly, you're like, oh right, yeah, it's not funny, is it? killing people yeah so it kind of turns it back on you but i think it doesn't in a very visceral way it's not in the kind of cerebral um Haneke sort of way we, we in the case of shane meadows we're we, we're totally there with him you know mm. well look what do you, i mean looking across these that's that's your five films so we've had we've had dead of night 45 at village of the dam 1960 we've had don't look now uh 73 we've had uh the omen 76 and we've had dead man's shoes now there's what would is there any is there any theme that springs to mind for you in terms of what you've what you've chosen that, that that holds those together? It's a tricky one, isn't it? I think there's certainly a a link um, between possibly Dead Man's Shoes and the Omen. It's, it's a hard one. I haven't really, really really occurred to me. Mm. I think it's the stories are quite are quite you know, and also with Dead Man's Shoes and Don't Look Now is is the studies in grief, mm. and I think there's something very sort of visceral about both of them. You you know both films. Um, you know, raise, raise your heart, but you're not kind of you're you're not watching them at one remove in a kind of distance way. You're you're really um there with the central character mm, and, yeah. and 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 caring about them. I think, and I think that's I think it's that kind of commitment to the um, emotional truth of the story. You know, which which means that when the horror beats happen, they really they really land. They're not just um oh we we have to have something jump out at us. Yeah, I guess it's Village of the Damned and the Omen. Have got the, the kind of reluctance to who could kill a child, as it were. Yes, because because that, children are innocent, therefore they can't be bad. No, exactly, and I believe there's a, a film which almost put on it called "Who Could Kill a Child" as well. Which yeah, is a, Spanish UK co-production, which is yeah, extraordinary, yeah, brutal film. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, I guess I guess weirdly, it, it, Dead of Night would be would be a kind of outlier only because I guess because it's a portmanteau and. In the same mm. way, it's an outlier for Elin, Elin Studios as well. It's, uh, but it's, but it's often held up as being, you know, one of the great British uh, horror films, because um, it also it feels. I mean, what I think the power of it is that it it feels like a whole film, even though obviously it's separate stories. In the same way, I think Ghost Stories hangs together as we're trying to solve the problem of the man in the caravan and what that was all about—the hunt for the real ghost—and equally in Dead of Night. We're basically trying to solve the problem as to why those people have been brought together in that house. No, absolutely. I mean, I, I, mean, I, did, I didn't mention it at the time, but it has that kind of um, 
relationship, I think, with later sort of Alicus films, doesn't it? You know, the ones where Peter Cushing invariably has a uh, a shop full of curios, all <laughs> the all cursed yeah, yeah, in some yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... You know, or, or that linking device thing. But you know, it's um, I think it's kind of one of the certainly one of the strongest examples of that. And, and if I'm, I'm going to since I've watched it, I'm, if I'm right, doesn't it sort of? It's a purgatory, isn't it? Because we sort of yes, we end at the beginning, don't we? We kind of. It's almost like the car's going to pull up again, isn't it? And we go through; they're going to go through it all again. No, I think that's a, it's a quite astonishingly sort of um, bleak ending. Yeah, bleak this time, yeah. yeah. So there's a sense of um, yes, it's a purgatory, and he's going to stay there um, in that loop, you know. So it's uh, yeah, probably very much a film that has some kind of post-war kind of scarring to it. Well, while we've got a couple of minutes then, just thinking about those films then in terms of you as a writer, which would, yeah. you, which would you say as, a, as maybe the most direct influence on how you or what you want to tackle in your writing? Oh, God, that's a tough question. Um, I'm not saying for a moment I would ever succeed, but I'd probably put something like Don't Look Now, certainly. Yeah. Um, and possibly uh, Dead Man's Shoes, just for that sense that um, in both films you don't necessarily... The characters don't necessarily know they're in a horror film. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah. They're not kind of characters observing the kind of um, beats of kind of horror archetypes or, or, or tropes or anything like that. They, they, they're, they're characters who are going through very difficult situations, and they take us with us into, into the supernatural. So if, if we start out as skeptics, we're not by the end of them. So I think it's, that's probably those two. But God, you know, it's a um, you know pretty giddy summit to look at <laughs> well no no unless you know aim for the aim for the stars and you might hit the moon you know as they say <laughs> that's a plan isn't it <laughs> indeed so i'm just thinking there just just the other thing i was thinking actually yeah they're all of them i mean i can't speak for all the directors of dead of night but they're all made they're all made by filmmakers that aren't necessarily just known for horror but, you know they're that's not, you know no that's, that's very true which is kind of why maybe this the the, the, the wider appeal of them of of them as a piece of cinema you know it's like they're made mm. by people that want to make film and it happens to be a horror film as opposed to um and i, I feel, feel like it's a bit more of a modern phenomenon but um mm. you know the idea of horror made by horror fans can can often just look like you're just trying to make a special effect look like the thing that you enjoy as opposed to as a lot of what we've talked about is yeah give 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 people characters and so you actually give a shit no, that's, that's that's very well put. I think that's that's at the centre of it. If you don't have that, then you you feel its absence, and you can end up, as you said, just making a, mm. a homage to other other films. And you know, how many times have we seen that horror movie where they close, you know, the bathroom cabinet door and the person's behind them, and etc. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's it's tricky to to um to avoid those those tropes. But I think if you're making a story that's character driven. And, you know, everything's coming out of the truth of those characters, whether they're alive or dead, ghost, zombie, vampire or whatever, then then you, then you, I think you you have a much stronger chance than if you're just trying to, you know, tick boxes. Indeed. Well, do, do, do you to, before you go then, do you want to remind people of the, the two films you've already done before? What Remind us again what they are. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, the two films thus far... Uh, not a horror, a <laughs> faint heart, which is a Channel Four film, a uh, film four film, I should say, and uh, Containment, which is uh, a viral panic thriller starring Lee Ross and Louise Brealey, who people may know as Molly App Sherlock. 
And 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 how can people see those films? Well, blimey, they're on uh, DVD and I think some VOD platforms. I'll have to check. I'm sure. I'm sure. Just a, a Google will let you know. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, look, thanks for your time on Five Great British Horror Films. My pleasure. The Britflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.